So as you guys know, this is the Vault series. Guys, I've been so excited for this for like almost two years. Um, and I'm so glad to begin to be able to begin to start it. One of the first things you need to understand is this is, for the first time ever, and probably no one ever does this, this is a Sunday-Wednesday combo, okay? So Sundays, uh, last Sunday was the preview session, right? Uh, so if, if you noticed, it was like we kind of hit these big points, and I didn't really clarify them. I was just like, point here, point here, and it's kind of like watching a little movie trailer, and you're like, and this guy says something important. And you're like, what does that mean? And you don't know until you go watch the movie. And this is a 16-part series, uh, <laughs> give or take, um, of it. So we're going to hear what all those things are. So this is session 1.0. Wednesdays are the deep dives, and I would say almost the more important side of it in one respect. And then Sundays, we're actually going to be covering parables. So all the parables that Jesus says, we'll actually be covering those on Sunday because the parables are where we get good understanding and where we get some natural application. Here's what you're supposed to do. All the rest of the things Jesus says and does, that's where we're diving into this on Wednesday. So they're going to couple together. So think of it like that every week is Wednesday part one, Sunday is part two, next Wednesday is part one and part two of each thing. They're going to work together. So it's going to be pretty awesome. Uh, so guys, I'm like in overdrive with how much information uh, we're going to be doing. So real quick, let's talk about what we kind of discussed on Sunday as the preview to get our minds back spinning about this whole idea. And we're diving into this, right? So last uh, on Sunday, we talked about this first thing. The kingdom is hidden for you, not from you, okay? God's not trying to hide it from you, to keep it away from you. It's hidden away for you. Jesus talks about this in several different parables about it's like a, a field and a guy has a treasure. He buries it and abandons everything to gain that treasure because it's hidden for you. What do you do with something precious? You lock it away, not just because you're trying to keep others out. You're trying to keep it secure for those that you want to give it to. The kingdom is not hidden from you, for you. Okay, uh, so if it's not hidden from you, that means it's not hidden knowledge or hidden information. This is commonly referred to as Gnosticism. We're going to define that in a minute. This is not hidden knowledge, okay? That's the first thing we need to make sure we can understand. The second thing is Scripture and Jesus were all about the kingdom coming. All about it. Everything in Scripture, everything Jesus says ties back to this one core understanding. It's all about the kingdom of God coming, not going anywhere. It's not about going to heaven. It's not about getting out of here. It's not about escaping. It's about bringing the kingdom of God here on earth. We see that in Genesis, okay? We've got to understand that because if we have a different concept of what Jesus was trying to teach us, and we think he's trying to teach us escapism, and like Dora, Dora, Dory, you know, and, and we're not Dora the Explorer, you know, not that, not that girl. The other one, the one that's a fish that forgets everything all the time. Yeah, so like escape. This is not the gospel of escape, okay? This is the, the gospel of bringing the kingdom here. We have to get that because if we're going to get what Jesus says, we have to think like Jesus thinks, okay? That's the second thing that was on Sunday. Christ gave us the keys to this, meaning the things he taught us, the messages he brought, he referred to them like a key, to like a door that unlocks and opens things, right? So it was given to you. So it's not hidden, remember. Not hidden. It's all about the kingdom coming, and it's a key. It's something that allows you to bring access to the kingdom, okay? That's the third thing we talked about. The next one is Jesus refers to himself as a door. He says he's the door. He's the access point. Another phrase that David uses is about gates, 
Okay, being gates, a gate and a door, meaning an access point to it. Jesus says, I'm the access point into this thing called the kingdom, okay? And we're using the analogy of the vault with this, okay? Number five from Sunday was there is nothing about his kingdom that is natural. Meaning, behind door number one, Monty, is not anything natural. It's not silver and gold, and, and it's, not, it's not even about your personal comfort in life. There is nothing about the kingdom of God that is naturally based. It is all spiritually based. Does that mean natural things don't come from it? Not at all, because the spirit can drive natural things. But there's nothing in it that is focused on the natural. Jesus says this, and we're going to be studying this later on. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Nothing about it is like this world. It's completely upside down and reversed from it. Not only that, there's nothing in this world that I even care about. That was Jesus' words. Remember, so far to the point, he said, don't even worry about what you're going to eat. Some of you right now are already thinking, what am I going to eat this evening? So you're already messing up. Just okay, so... <laughs> So we've, we've got that. There's nothing about it that's natural. It's all spiritual. And then the last thing we talked about was Jesus and the tree of life. Okay? Jesus and the tree of life. We looked all the way back at Genesis and how actually in the, in the original connotation it says that he blocked the way of the tree of life, not to the tree of life. We're going to discuss that in more detail in later weeks. But we also talked about this and how Jesus says, hey, I am. Eternal life is to know God and to know me who I'm sent because I'm giving you that access to it. So it's all this tied together about bringing Eden. Back, this place, this spot, this moment, this presence, this open door. And you may be thinking, where is all this coming from? I refer you to the last two years of teachings. Just click on something. I guarantee you, at one point we read Genesis at least once or twice. So, all right. So that's all the review. I know that was really quick, wasn't it? That was just to make sure that now we can take it a little slower. So, before we begin, let's talk about a few terms that you're going to hear today and in the future, and if you start studying this. Term number one is a very common one, but most of us don't know what it is. Maybe it's gospel, the word gospel. This word gospel is found all throughout the, the New Testament, and all it really means is good news. So, you know, you could, you could tell someone, you, when you... Uh, get a raise at work, you could tell them the gospel of your raise, the good news of your raise. So it just means good news. That's why you commonly see it says the gospel of the kingdom, because the word gospel itself doesn't have any meaning as to what it's talking about. It just means it's good news. Now, one of the things we have to understand about gospel is Jesus was preaching the gospel from day one. Which means there must be more to the gospel than Jesus dying and raising again. That doesn't mean that's not a part of it. But he was already teaching the gospel before these things happened. And before people even really were thinking about his death, burial, resurrection kind of thing yet. Okay? So there's more to the gospel. That's the first thing we need to understand. Okay? But does that mean that the, these parts of the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection are less? No, not at all. Which leg is more important, your right one or your left one? <laughs> They're equally important because you can't walk or run, you know. <laughs> Y'all ever seen tripod dogs? They're missing the back leg, you know. They, they can get going, but they're still not as functioning. So we can't cut off one leg to spike the other. I'm not saying it's less important. There's just more that we need to understand to this gospel of the kingdom. Okay? Now, the next word is the word Gnostic or Gnosticism. This is not a word we use very commonly at all. It's actually a Greek word. And it literally means like esoteric, mystical, uh, mystical knowledge. Basically hidden knowledge. Things in which only the elite know. 
and you're on the outside trying to peer in, but if you're not one of the elite, you don't know it. If you have to ask, then you're not of the elite. This right here is Gnosticism. This makes its way into so much of modern Christianity. It has made its way into so much of the way we even do church, in the mannerisms that people go to a minister thinking that there's some kind of hidden knowledge or specialty that I have or someone else has that you don't have, and that's nothing to do with the kingdom of God. That's not how Jesus did it. He said the door's open, wide open. Gnosticism has no place in a true spiritual walk with God. God says, I'm no respecter of person, which means if he's revealed it to one, he'll reveal it to another. Now, don't get that twisted with thinking you don't have to do the work that other person did, because if he's no respecter of persons, if you have to work, if someone else has to work at getting it, so do you. And that's where we see a disparity between the two. We see people that seemingly have this extra revelation and knowledge and understanding and spirituality, and you're just like, oh, wow. But what you don't know is they're working very hard towards it. So don't look at it and think that God is favoring them and his knowledge and wisdom. You're just not working at knowing him. Okay, so. Wow. That did not go over well. Okay. So if you're looking for hidden revelation and hidden meaning, you are missing everything about Jesus, everything about the kingdom of God, you're missing it. So stop looking for it. Okay. Next one is this word synoptic. has nothing to do with Gnosticism. I know you're like, they rhyme, they must mean, no, they have nothing to do with each other. Synoptic basically meaning a synopsis of, okay? It basically means a general summary. Can you spell that? Synoptic, yes, S-Y-N-O. P-T-I-C, synoptic. Basically like a synopsis, right? A summary of, the, the opening of, say. So we'll see this term, and you'll, if you do research, you'll see that there are three synoptic gospels. Sometimes you, you might think, no, there's four gospels. There are four gospels. Three of them are considered synoptic gospels, okay? Synoptic meaning they're a general summary. So what does a general summary do? A general summary gives you basic high points, but it doesn't tell you all the details. The reason that's super important to know is that the intent of the writers was not to give you every little detail. So here we are 2,000 years later, and you'll hear people say, well, why did John say this, but, but Matthew didn't say that, and they didn't tell us all of this. They weren't trying to. They are summarizing it to help you understand the basics behind it. Because even they, as writers, said, I can only give you the summary of it. It's your job to go get to know him. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say it. Sorry, there's a little bit of preaching coming into this, too. But it's, I'm not here with you, okay? I'm not here with you. Because we want to live vicariously through the Gospels instead of finding out the Gospel for ourselves. We want to live through their good news instead of get our own good news. And the intent behind it is not to just know God through their good news and their gospel. That's to give you the summary, broad strokes, get the idea, and then begin to dig into your own relationship. Okay. Then the last one is this word parable. And the reason I think we have to define the word parable is just because it's not really a word we don't use anymore at all. The word parable basically is a story. It's, it's a thing. It's like a story used with analogy in it, sometimes there's metaphor in it, and it's to illustrate some kind of a moral or spiritual understanding, right? So it's like a story that gives you an understanding about life. Analogies, right, make things similar to each other, so a lot of times in a parable you'll see analogies between two things. But an analogy is just kind of like this, is kind of like that, right? 
Whereas a parable is saying, this is like that, and let me tell you all the nuances behind it. Let me help you understand what I mean by it. Jesus was a master at parable, but guess what? He wasn't the first one. The entire Old Testament is filled with parables. A lot of times we don't look at it that way, but a lot of the writers of the Old Testament wrote in parables. They wrote things that were trying to help illustrate how God did what he did and what he meant by it. We're not going to dive into those too much because we have a whole lot of words of Christ to study. But this parable idea, that's where Jesus got his inspiration from because he knew the scripture. So, those are just some things we need to understand. Okay? Now, I do realize some of you are like, can you just start reading the words of Jesus? No. Because then you're just going to hear them and walk out and not get the context. So the next thing we need to do, who was here for our study guide sessions? Yes, they were absolutely amazing. If not, go go to the app and click on study notes. There are seven or eight of them. All the videos are linked in there and all the notes are. It is all about how to study your Bible. So guess what we're going to implore right now? Some of that great information that you already received which is we need to do a little bit of deep dive into what we're going to read. Because remember, what we're doing over the next eight weeks or so is paralleling all four of the Gospels together. So when we read an instance of a situation happening, we're going to look at all four accounts at the same time. Which means you're going to have to swap your mind and say, well, who am I reading? Okay, what is he trying to get at? Who am I reading? So, so let's just real quick, let's look now, I have it in a little bit of a graphic form here. I realize that it's super small for you guys to see from there. This is all the information that is already in your notes, and it's lined out just as it says Mark, who, uh, who is the implied author, to whom, where, when, and what, right? So that's what this is right here, and then it's just every book. I just want to show it to you all in one. I'm hoping that I can get this graphic put into your notes next week. But to be honest, technology beat me, and I don't know how to do that yet. Uh, so, um, so it's already in there. It's just in linear form versus, you know, kind of horizontal here. But let's just talk real quick. I'm not going to go through every single bit of this because I've done the hard work for you. I've went and researched and found all this, okay? But it's all in those notes. But let's just talk a little bit about some of these things here. Okay, the reason they're not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is because Mark is actually, so far that we know of, the oldest gospel. So I wanted to line them out and oldest to newest, okay? So if we look at these, we've got this guy, Mark. He's commonly referred to as John Mark of Jerusalem, okay? Uh, and there's some uh, scriptures that show us that's who he is there. Um, he would have been a bilingual guy. He would have been able to speak Aramaic and Greek. How do we know that? Well, because he uses Aramaic words and Greek words, and he's from Jerusalem. They would have spoke Aramaic and Greek. Okay? So now we know a little bit about the author. Interesting thing is he's a, a second-generation Christian, and he's actually mentioned as a young man in Scripture, meaning he's, he's young whenever this is all transpiring, and then in his later years, he writes this down and compiles it, right? Um, so who is he writing to? He's mostly writing to Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people, and that are pretty new to the faith. That's, his, that's kind of his viewpoint. He's thinking, you're new, you need to understand some things, and you're not of the Jewish culture, so I'm going to give you some, uh, some, some basic understanding. And they were, at the time that he penned this, heavily persecuted. Anyone, this is just, this is, we'll cut this out. Now, anyone in today's world that lives in the United States that says we're persecuted as Christians, no, you're not. Go do some research. Go look at what these guys went through. 
none of us would be professing Christians. We ain't got what it takes. Probably because we don't know God, they really did. If we got to know him, we may would have what it takes to go under their persecution. They were truly persecuted, okay? Like hardcore physically, not just like someone posted bad about me. No, like some, like, yeah, they posted you all right, up on a stake, like you were posted for the world to see. So heavy persecution happening when he penned this right here. Where, more than likely, he was in Rome, um, that we, we don't really know exactly, but that's more than likely where it was, somewhere Alexandria, something like that. The reasons we know that is where they tend to find these scrolls and stuff. Uh, so they kind of, hey, this is, this is where it is. Um, it was written as early as the 50s, not 1950, but uh, 50 AD, okay? Uh, so if you look at kind of a timeline, Jesus would have died somewhere between 30 to 33. Uh, there's a little bit of controversy as to how that, that worked out. Uh, but uh, 50, so about 20 years, give or take, after. It's the earliest ones um, that, that we have. Now, his main thing that he's trying to get across is this gospel idea, this good news idea. And why he's trying to do it is to encourage these people that, hey, you're going through some really like persecution right now, but keep the faith. And you'll see that argument made quite a bit throughout his gospel. Now, the next one we have is Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. We know that. He was also a trained scribe. Like he, Because of his writing, it's actually in very proper grammar uh, in Greek. So we know he was very educated. He was obviously very good with math because he got to collect taxes. He was the IRS that got saved. Uh, <laughs> um, so that, that was him. He would have been a Jewish Christian with it, okay? He would have been very well educated. He probably wrote this in Galilee and Antioch. The way we know that is because a lot of the story in Acts places him in Antioch, roughly at the times that maybe he would have been experiencing some of these things. Um, probably the 60s or 70s AD, sometime in there, um, would have been. That's the earliest documents that we kind of have of these things. Okay, um, and his heavily focuses, Matthew heavily focuses on the genealogy of Christ, meaning the physical line of where he came from, tracing him all the way back to actually Adam, showing that this is all one family. He focuses on this. You'll notice, like, John doesn't say anything about it. Certain ones do, certain ones don't, okay? So, and then what is he trying to do? He's trying to teach a community that has all kind of internal division between the Christian faith, and then external forces. And so he's trying to kind of write and get them lined out a little bit here. Now, we have Luke. Um, Luke is commonly referred to as like a physician, so he would have been like a doctor of the day, right? Um, and he was actually a companion to Paul. So he would have traveled with Paul. He did a lot of Paul's kind of scribing of what Paul had said. Um, he was a Gentile who then converted to Christianity, okay? Um, and he was also well-educated in, uh, in Greek as well. Now, we believe that uh, the audience of this is basically anyone who's a believer. He kind of just addresses believer. He doesn't really care so much about Gentiles and Jews. He kind of makes a little bit of distinction, but he's much more just like, if you're a believer, you're a believer. We don't really care. Um, that's kind of how his, his, his place is. Now, where did he write it? More than likely Greece and Antioch as well, because that's where Paul was, right? Paul was in Greece and Rome significantly, and he traveled with him. Uh, for quite a bit. This would have been around the mid-70s, mid-80s, something like that. Now, the interesting thing about Luke is he actually pulls from earlier sources, okay? meaning that a lot of what he writes was already inspired by other things, like maybe 
from Mark and maybe from other things that we don't have. He pinned them down and collaborated them together. Um, we have that because we have scrolls that are like, hey, this is not Mark writing. Here, did you see it again? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Siri, trying to get in on this. That's cool. Um, so, uh, <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so earlier sources combined with this, right? Um, now, uh, what was he trying to do? He was trying to give an orderly account. And what's meant by orderly account, he was trying to kind of clear up some things and line out some things in his in the summary that he was doing. And to secure this knowledge, meaning make it, make it like really grounded in whatever. Because what you have to understand is at the time, you might be saying, are we going to study Jesus? Yes, but you need to know all this. But you have to understand is at the time they're writing this stuff, there is no New Testament scripture. There is no, there's nothing. So you just have people that have come to know God, and and and, and they're just gone, like going and doing and saying whatever kind of. And so they, they kind of bring in a lot of their old religions to it. And so what he's trying to do is saying, hey 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 hey, we gotta we gotta. This is the main thing. It wouldn't be much unlike what's happening right now within the Christian faith alone. Where there is just so many splinter groups everywhere that it was like what he's attempting to do is kind of bring it back in and reel it back in and get them back to the core. That's just kind of his goal with it. Uh, and this is basically challenging any believer to put their faith into full practice. Okay, like that's that's kind of what he's getting at is practice your faith, get to the core of it, and practice it, make it a part of your daily life. Now let's talk about John, because that is the three synoptic gospels. The three big general summaries. Now you may be saying to yourself, self, but John is a gospel too, and he tells me a story too. Yes, he does. But John's is solely intended for spiritual understanding. John's gospel is what's called an abstract gospel, which means when he sat down to pen it, he was not necessarily trying to be historically accurate with when and what happened. What his main goal was when John wrote it is to say, I need you to understand the person of Christ as it relates to spiritual understandings of things. And that's why if you notice when you read a lot of John's Gospels, it's much more poetic and much, much more spiritually focused of things. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about who said what, when, where, why. He spends a lot of time giving you the meaning of Christ, the meaning of eternal life. This, this, he gets a lot of meaning in what he says and you may be saying, well, I don't see that. Just go read it. And by the end of this, you'll know that. And he, he, he focuses on that. He even opens it with what's called a cosmic poetry or cosmic hymn, which is John 1.1, 1, 1, which was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what's called a cosmic hymn or a cosmic poem, because what he's doing is he's actually pulling Genesis into the picture and saying, he's basically starting from the idea that you already know all that, and now you're already kind of spiritually awakened and active, and now I want to talk to you about Christ. That's kind of how he's approaching it a little bit, okay? Now, uh, let's talk about a few things with this. He was the son of Zebedee. That's kind of going to be important later on, not like super important at the moment, but it's kind of interesting because there are some prophecies around that, and all of you who love prophecy, we're going to talk about some prophecy. Um, so uh, he is commonly referred to as the beloved disciple um, with it. Um, Basically, his audience was super mixed between Gentiles, Jews, and Sumerians, okay? Not Sumerians, Sumerians. There's a difference between those two. Basically, a Sumerian, okay, 
is someone, uh, or Samaritans rather is probably a better way to phrase that, but, uh, but these are people who are of the Jewish uh, ethnicity, but they have a different faith than the Jews. Okay? They died out as far as their belief system did, but they're, where their differences come, this is just a little history lesson you can write down and go research it on your own time. Okay? A Samaritan and a Jewish person had basically the same beliefs, except for where they diverged was during the time of the Babylonian, basically, takeover. So when, when Daniel right, is in the lion's den and all that stuff, that's happening while the Babylonians have taken some people out of Jerusalem. When they are come back together, there are two faiths that now exist. And one calls themselves the Samaritans, and they argue that they worshipped the original way. And then you have the Jewish people who kind of tended to adopt some of the things from Babylonia. Okay? And so they had this argument over how things... And now you're going to see why there's a big importance of Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman, because they had the same faith. And she was saying what? Some say we should worship here. Some say we should worship there. What is she then? She is saying when the, when, the, when the Messiah comes, we'll know. And she's like, hey, you're looking at it, bro. Okay? So this is why. Oh, and then Jesus tells the story of a good Samaritan. Why did he say a Samaritan? Because in his, in his parable that he's telling here, he's saying these are someone that don't, doesn't believe as you, but yet they've got the heart of God too. He's trying to broaden the scope. Now, that's just freebies. We're going to discuss this in detail later on. Okay? So you just need to know about that a little bit. All right. We got to speed up. Uh, okay, um, he would have been in Galilee uh, or Ephesus uh, at the time of this Asia Minor. Um, how do we know this? Well, because he also writes letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. He spends a lot of time in that area. Okay, this has probably been somewhere around the eighties, uh, maybe even the nineties. Um, now, what we do know is that there's some earlier additions to parts of what John wrote that existed all the way back to the fifties. Meaning, there's parts of what's in his gospel that were already we have documents showing. There's like pieces of it that existed back from the 50s, but the ending of it didn't come in until like 100 AD. So meaning, people either wrote down what he was saying, or he wrote it down in parts and pieces over the course of his life. Okay, It's kind of like, think about this if you had a diary, right? You didn't sit down and just decide to pen the last 10 years of your life, right? Like it's kind of, you write some, and then maybe you go three or four months without writing, and you write some more down. That's how his gospel was kind of compiled with that, okay? Um, and so, basically, he's, he's trying to get people who have been from the Jewish faith, kind of ostracized from Judaism, because now they believe in Christ, uh, and trying to kind of bring them together and showing, no, you're still of the same faith, you're just taking it with the Messiah, okay? So there's all of that about the Gospels. You'll want to refer back to this um, throughout our studies, just kind of on your own time and stuff like that. Um, because that is a whole, that is like the foundational bedrock of so now we know who we're looking at, what we're reading, and all that stuff. That's the boring part, okay? Y'all ready to have some fun now? I'm already just here. And I haven't got to the good information yet, okay? Um, so, let's talk about this. Every week we're going to do it in this manner. We're going to have kind of a history timeline event time section where we're going to read about an event and what Jesus said during the event, and then we're going to talk about a concept that appears from them, okay? Because that's how we've got to understand. We've got to understand what happened, who he was talking to, why he said what he said, and then what was he meaning by it. So that's kind of how we're going to break it down. So I'm not ultra concerned to go through the historicity of Jesus' birth and all that kind of stuff. You can go read that on your own time. 
okay? Because we're jumping right into when Jesus begins his ministry. That's what we care most about, right? Is the message he taught. So let's talk about this first major event that happens and the first time we really begin to see Jesus speak outside of one gospel, which is at his baptism, okay? It's a pretty important time. So what we're going to do is this is located in Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, and John chapter 1. All four of them mention and talk about this. Now, when you look at the first three, the three synoptic Gospels, they give you some more details about it. They talk about who was there, what was happening, and that John baptized Jesus. John, the abstract spiritual one, doesn't really mention about Jesus' direct baptism. He just is talking about baptisms happening and Jesus is around. He kind of doesn't really touch on it. He jumps to something else that he felt was a little bit more important. So we're going to talk about all of these right now. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not actually going to read you all the chapters, right? Because I have to read you four chapters, and we've got a long way to go, because we're covering two things today. So what we're going to do is we're going to just kind of breeze through a couple of these. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 3 here real quick. Um, I am going to read it. Uh, in the King James, I apologize if I fumble around a little bit, uh, because I don't speak King James on a daily, um, you know, I kind of do fumble, but it is important uh, for some of the word translations as we continue on, so I just want to keep it consistent, okay? Uh, consistent. So, out of the first three synoptic Gospels, what we see is the same thing portrayed. John the Baptist out in the wilderness baptizing people and telling them basically, repent, and uh, the, the, the Lamb of God is coming, this, is, this thing is happening. John the Baptist was looked at as a heretic because he was crazy. One thing you need to know about John the Baptist as well, he taught one message his entire life, which was basically repent, kingdom of God is at hand, here comes Jesus, like I'm the forerunner kind of a thing, right? Now the other thing you need to know about him is he was actually in the lineage to become a high priest. And he abandoned that. He's like this first rebellious pastor's kid. And he abandoned that and then became and went out into the wilderness and was teaching the message that he taught. And then what we see is Jesus come onto the scene. Jesus comes onto the scene and says, hey, John, you're going to baptize me. And John is saying, hey, there is one coming that I baptize you with water. This is mentioned in, in the Gospels. But he's going to baptize you with Holy Ghost and fire. Okay? Basically, John was saying, I'm doing it physically to represent spiritually. He's going to do it spiritually. Now, again, I hope you're, I'm already, I'm getting a little off because I'm so excited about this, guys. This is so hard for me, and I apologize if I, I actually don't, but, so, listen, listen to this, think about this for a minute. John says, I'm baptizing you physically with water to illustrate a spiritual baptism that's going to happen. When that spiritual baptism happens, then you're going to want to illustrate it in the natural, which is where we commonly now get our physical baptisms. Y'all see how it's... Yeah, y'all catch it at the end of this. Okay, it's all right. Uh, so let's read right here. So right here in Matthew 3, um, we'll, we'll do verse 13. So then comes Jesus from Galilee, Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. So John's going to baptize him. In verse 14, but John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you. Come down and baptize me. So John's saying, I can't baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus says this. It's the first thing we have of Jesus speaking right here, actually, in Matthew. And he says this. Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becomes of us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, when we look at the, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't have Jesus saying anything at this point. Mark just says, 
Basically, that John baptizes him, and this thing happens, and then he goes to the wilderness. We have the same thing that happens in Luke. Luke just says, hey, this baptism happens. We don't really have anything that Jesus said in these. Jesus kind of speaks after the event. So this is the only words at this moment of this event that we are going to dissect. And there's, some, there's a lot to this, so we're going to hit the high points and then move on, because I now have 20 minutes to get four hours worth of studying. <laughs> Weeks and weeks. <laughs> so suffer it to be so now. Now, if you look at this in the original Greek, it just says suffer now. Which, not like in the way y'all are thinking, y'all are like suffer, like, oh, we're going to suffer. That's not what suffer means there. What the word suffer actually means here is to mean to be like, let it alone. Basically, drop it. You're going to do this. That's what he's saying. Jesus is kind of just saying, no, you're going to do this. Okay? Now, the word now here means at this very moment, like right now. You're going to notice a lot of what Jesus tends to say has a whole lot to do with now, now, right now. A lot, and that's important. Why did he feel the need to specify the time whenever they're constantly referring to this, when they record Jesus, they constantly keep, he's right now, right now, right now. Why? Because they're trying to point out there is not something that you're waiting on for these things to happen, it, the time is now. Okay? It's going to be important. As we continue on, you're going to see why. For it becomes us to fulfill our righteousness. There's some interesting things here about this phrasing. For thus, it becomes us to fulfill righteousness. Now, what he's saying here is, because of, because of this, now is the time. Because of this, it falls to us. We have to do this. We have to be the ones to fulfill it. There, the phrase actually kind of tends to lean meaning that because others haven't, now you have to. So Jesus is kind of doing a callback to everything in the Old Testament, all of the failures, and he's actually calling back and saying, because of all this, now we have to bear this load. See, we always look at it like John the Baptist, what an honor! It was a, bear, it was a burden and a load to carry this walk out. And you see Jesus refer to that as we continue on. So he's saying, we have to be the ones to carry out all righteousness. Now, this word righteousness is the same word pretty much used throughout all of Scripture, and it means to be in right standing with, or the way one ought to be. Right? So the way it should be, but not just anything, the way a person should be in right standing. Okay. But what this is actually doing, again, when they recorded the essence and the concepts of what Jesus was saying, they intended for their audience and all that, knew what they were talking about. This is actually a call back to Abraham, showing that he is of the same line of this, and showing that he is also of the same priestly order, which we'll get to later. So y'all are like, where are all these things? We're going to get to them this week. What he's actually doing is saying, all the righteousness. Now, if you look back in the Old Testament, Abraham, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. Meaning that it was put to him as right standing. What Jesus is saying is now we're going to do this right now because it's fallen to us to do this work to restore all righteousness. He's saying this is the beginning of it. Okay? Follow me. Okay. So this is all we get at the baptism of Jesus right there. Like that's the only thing he's recorded to have said. It's just that right there. But that's a lot of information. It's showing us why. Now, one of the other things you must understand, which we're going to see as we continue to read here, is that there's a reason for it. Because there's this idea 
of fulfilling the law. And baptism is not a New Testament thing. Baptism goes all the way back into the Old Testament, into tabernacle worship. We talked about a little bit on our communion Sunday about the washing of the hands before you ate. That was symbolic baptism. There's all kinds of things. And so Jesus is saying, I am going to fulfill this law, even though I don't have to. I'm going to do it to show. Now, let's continue on. So that's all we get from Jesus. Now, you may be saying, okay, well, that was anticlimactic. Cool. What we've got to do is compare what he said there to what happens immediately after, because all of these things work together as one. So the very next thing that happens is the 40 days. 40 days in the wilderness is the very next thing that happened. Now, when we look at the 40 days in the wilderness, Matthew gives us a lot of information about it. Luke gives us a lot of information about it, and Luke's and Matthew's are basically identical, except for Luke kind of shifts up which temptation comes first. Other than that, they're the same, okay? Now, Mark doesn't have Jesus saying anything during this temptation. Mark just says, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and was tempted, and then he came back and he begins to say some things that we're going to look at in just a moment. And then John doesn't really give even a direct account. But John does do this interesting thing where right after he's mentioning about the baptism, John and some of his disciples are kind of out there in the wilderness, and Jesus apparently is wandering around in the wilderness in his account. He doesn't mention it's a temptation, but he just says, as they were in the wilderness, and we're going to look at it in just a minute, but I'm just giving you the pretext here. John says, as they're in the wilderness, his two disciples are like looking, watching Jesus, and Jesus is like, Why are you, what are you looking at right now? Well, what's happening right now? And then, basically, he says, come see, and they end up hanging out together, and they're like, he's the Messiah. So there was something happening. John doesn't, again, why? He's trying to get you to a spiritual understanding. So he doesn't really catch his, he's not trying to get caught up in the details of what was happening. He's trying to show you a bigger picture, right? So, really where we need to look then is Matthew and Luke. And being as, is that I have, I wrote the scriptures down there for you. They are literally almost identical. We're just going to stick with Matthew for these next, uh, for these. So. so let's look at Matthew chapter 4. So we just read a little bit of chapter 3, right? Um, and so we see after Jesus says this, suffer to be so, so we can fulfill all righteousness. He baptized them. It says the Spirit of God descended like a dove. It doesn't say a dove landed on his shoulder, like a dove, meaning the peaceful gracefulness of a dove. Okay, that's an analogy, right? Not literal. God does not look like a dove. Okay, just clarify that real quick, all right? So, here's, here's what happens after this. It says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. We're going to talk about that in future weeks, that whole phrasing, my son in whom I'm well pleased. But let's just focus in on this next one. So, this is what happens in chapter 4. It says, that Jesus was led of the Spirit unto the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Okay? And when he went fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he afterwards was hungry. Uh, yeah, I would be too. Y'all can't make it four hours. Uh, so, uh, and the tempter came to him and said, If thou be the Son of God, we're going to talk about that phrase later, so just mark that in your notes. If thou be the Son of God, command the stones to turn to bread. Basically, you're hungry. You're the Son of God. You, know, you, just, you can do this. Like, they, Notice the, 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 the question was not, can you do this? It was like, you can do it. Do it. Now watch what Jesus says. 
It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It says, in the day, and I'm going to read this whole thing, and then we're going to kind of break it down. And the devil had taken him to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of it. And it said unto him, Thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give angels charge over thee, and their hands shall bear thee up, at least at any time you dash your foot against the stone. So now look what we got. Now we got the opposition. We got the devil actually quoting scripture back to Jesus. There's kind of a thing in Genesis where the serpent actually quotes back the words of God. Are y'all seeing some similarities? Mm-hmm. Yes. What does Jesus say? It is also written, or it is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And said, uh, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Get hence, Satan, or get thee behind me, Satan, is the phrasing that most people use. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall I serve. And the devil left him, and behold, his angels came and ministered to him. And now Jesus heard that John was in prison, and he departed unto Galilee. So let's leave it right there. So that, again, in the other gospel that, that we get this saying, right, uh, Ma- uh, Matthew and Luke, Basically the exact same story. They just switch between those last two. So the first one is, worship the Lord your God. And the next one is, don't tempt God, right? Don't test God. So the same account that we get here. Now, let's look at something. There's some things we need to understand. Remember, we're supposed to have the mind of Christ and things like Christ. What was his response to opposition every single time? The words of God. Now, that was also written words of God, but he did not respond with him. Yeah, I'm going to go for it. He didn't respond with complaining. He didn't respond with anything other than this is what God already said. God's word is final, thus that's all I repeat back. We can learn that lesson right there and probably solve all the world's problems. And probably solve all of yours. Because you are one of the world's problems. (laughs) I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But uh, what was his response every time? Look at the mind of Christ. In the temptation, every time, his answer did not change. It was what God had already said. It didn't change as time went on in the temptation. It didn't change whenever the temptation actually quoted him a scripture that would give him an out. That's called twistedness. That's called wickedness. Y'all don't see that, right? Because the second time the temptation said, let me give you a scripture then. If you want to quote, let me give you one that helps you in this and get you out of the mess. Oh, isn't that escapism? Mm. Y'all not seeing that. Y'all didn't see that. Y'all didn't catch that the first time around. Yeah, see, see, now it's, I'm going to take Scripture, and I'm going to take it to make it get me out of a mess. Yeah, we've all done that. Not a gospel of escapism. Jesus' mind wasn't to get out of the mess. It was to go through the mess. It was to persevere. It was to be stronger than it. It was to overcome, not avoid. That's the mind of Christ, guys. Y'all aren't seeing that. You see, because what you do is you just read it, and you have this picture of devil with a pitchfork running around being, hey, Jesus, let's go up to the top of this mountain. And like, like this weird, like, no. And I, that's how I picture it, whatever. I always heard the story as a kid. No, this is the opposition, the temptation, the tempter, the thing that is trying to get Jesus not to step into who he is. Remember, he just got affirmed by God in his baptism, saying, I'm going to do all righteousness. So what does this also show us about your spiritual walk? As soon as you decide to step into what God's called you to do, 
The Spirit led him into the wilderness. It did not say that the enemy came to attack him. It said the Spirit led him there to be tempted. Yeah, I don't like this spirit. This is the spirit of God. Saying, cool, you affirmed it, you're with me, now let's test that theory real quick, shall we? Let's make it solid. The spirit led him into this, and then his response every time is what God said. Now here we have an issue as believers, because we don't have the mind of Christ, we don't know that's how we're supposed to respond, and then even we're like, oh, that's how I'm supposed to respond. We don't know what God said. Jesus constantly, you're going to see this, you're just going to get tired of it too. Like, he just constantly quoted Old Testament. Like, constantly. He was, and he assumed everyone else knew it. Like, he wasn't like, hey, have you had a chance to read it? He was like, you're supposed to have. His assumption was that this was ingrained into you. It was a part of you. Because in his view, it's all about the kingdom of God. So what does he do? He actually responds with Deuteronomy. Every time, every verse that he does is Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8. Okay? All three of the things he quotes are from Deuteronomy. Now, if you look in here, I've actually given you a, a detailed kind of outline as to what was happening in Deuteronomy of why this was actually originally quoted. Okay? One time is in Deuteronomy 8. This is when man shall not live by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is when the Israelites were hungry because they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh-oh, what do we see here? He's in the wilderness for 40 years, the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. What is the writer doing for us? Saying, hey, you remember how Moses was your main man of the hour, too sweet to be sour? But he kind of really got soured out on the people later on. But how, how he, he's here, and he was your guy giving the law. He's saying, hey, this is the new one. This is the ending of that law. So there's a parallel that's happening here. So Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, which is where the law is being given. And God tested them in the wilderness so that they would not lean and that they would obey everything that comes from the mouth of God. Because what did he do? God provided them manna, right? But there was instructions as to how the manna came. They could not store it up. Why? Because they had to trust that God was going to provide the next time. It was a lesson on trust. I would also like to to just point out that ending little statement I put in there. Recall Adam and Eve's choice was also they'd rather eat something than rely on the words of God. Now the next one says, do not test the Lord your God, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. What is interesting in this story, to me, is how the enemy quotes Scripture. And I already told you about that one. He actually quotes from Psalms 91, if you're looking uh, at, at that particular uh, synopsis there. Now, Here's what we need to look at next. Deuteronomy 16 is where he quotes there. And the last one, actually, uh, there's a credo statement that comes out of Deuteronomy 16. It's, O Israel, Yahweh is your God, Yahweh alone. Okay? And the next one is the chapter about the people exhorting and his commands and, and all this kind of stuff. As we read on, you're going to see how that credo plays in. Okay? But I wanted to put it in there now, because I'm hoping that you're going to refer back to these lessons and about lesson four, and you'll overlay them and see how they work together, okay? Now, what's the last one? Get away, Satan, or get thee behind me, Satan, because it's written, worship the Lord your God only. This is also in Deuteronomy 6, chapter 13, that he quotes this, okay? So this is all coming from this time of giving of law, and Jesus is quoting from that, okay? That's important. That he's giving, he's quoting back the law. 
He's quoting back the things that have already happened from the time of Moses, okay? Now, <clears throat> I would like to point this out about the trust in God because I love this little, this little phrase and statement here. A trust that is weak or wavering and seeks a sign or some dramatic intervention to make it steady is not trust at all. That is trust and reliance on a execution of something, not trust and reliance on who it comes from. That's a trust and reliance on a hand versus a face. Maybe not seeking the hand of God, but the face of God. You can read that whole synopsis that I gave you right there about what was happening in Deuteronomy chapter 6 with the people about giving the water. Uh, for the sake of time, I won't go into that. Um, so as I said, Mark chapter 1, uh, Jesus says nothing until he returns. Um, Luke chapter 4 gives the same account, and John basically kind of alludes to this thing happening. Now, what Jesus does say, it seems to, in John chapter 1, where remember he doesn't really give an account of days, Jesus communicates and he says two things. He basically says this, he says, what do you seek? So what are you looking for? And then he says, well, come and see what you're looking for. We don't know, because of the way John writes it, we don't know if this happened during the 40 days, like John, they saw him hanging out, we don't know if it happened immediately after, we don't really know, we just know it seems to point to it happened during that time frame. So Jesus, you know, sometimes we have this picture like he's out in the wilderness and just there's no one for miles. I mean, if you look geographically speaking, he would have been just on the outside. So the odds are they probably saw him and ran into him because John was out there trying to catch locusts, you know, like all the time because he had to eat something. That's a joke. This is where I will, I've just realized this, guys. This may be a 30-week series. Because <laughs> if I just got through that and I didn't even get to touch on the rest of this. <laughs> can I have an extra 10 minutes? Yes. Okay, cool. An extra 10 minutes, I can get through this first part. And then we'll recap this next a little bit. So there's a concept that comes out from this, though. So y'all are like, okay, cool. We're learning about things. I've heard all about that. Cool. I've read that a thousand times, and I still get something out of it every time. But what does come out, the interesting thing is, this word fulfillment, it actually is mentioned in all four Gospels, and it happens right at the beginning or the end of these two events. And we're going to read these, because this is huge. And it basically tells us about three things that are fulfilled. The law, righteousness, and some prophecies. <clears throat> This fulfillment idea was something that Jesus spoke about frequently. So before we dive into what those are real quick, let's define this word fulfillment, not as you think it to be, but as the writers meant it when they wrote the word fulfillment. And let's just put this on, let's put our spiritual thinking caps on, use your noodle a little bit, and let me just see if this definition starts to illuminate a little bit of some other phrase that we're about to read. The word fulfillment, or to be fulfilled, means to be completed. It means to make full. It means to satisfy, like a debt that has been owed, that is now paid off. That's what the word fulfillment means. So this has been fulfilled, it means it's completed. It means it's filled to the brim, it's done, it is satisfied. There's nothing else wanting in it. Okay? Y'all remind me about that if I forget. 
Matthew 4, 14. This is right, right? We, we, just, we just looked at this, right? Matthew 4, 14. All righteousness must be fulfilled. So what is he saying? It needs to be completed. It needs to be satisfied. It needs to be done. All right? It needs to be fulfilled. Now, where else does this idea of fulfillment come from? Mark chapter 1. Let's jump over to Mark chapter 1. Okay? What we're doing right now is we're overlaying these. Why we're jumping is because this is all the same thing happening in all four Gospels. I know it's complicated. Y'all are used to hearing one scripture, but we're looking at all four of them so we get the full context of what's happening here. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Okay? This is right after it talks about Jesus. So in verse 13 it says, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days. Remember, we just deciphered that. So what we're about to read is what Mark says happens right after. Now, after John was put in prison, this is verse 14, after John was put in, put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So we know what Jesus was doing. He is already talking. I mean, his immediate thing from coming from this temptation and overcoming it, he's preaching the gospel. He ain't died yet. He ain't risen yet. So he's preaching the first part of the gospel. Okay? That's what he's preaching. We're going to get into that later. But he's doing this. And this is what he's saying. <laughs> this is what the gospel of the kingdom is. Because it just said he's preaching the gospel. And this is what he's saying. God, this is not complicated. Here's the answer right here. The time is what? Now. Fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is now at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Okay, so we got a nice little end cap here just in case you missed what the gospel of the kingdom is. It says he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. What is the good news, pray to tell? The good news is that the kingdom of God is here and now, okay? So the first thing we need to decipher is this time is fulfilled. We just understood what fulfilled meant, right? It's completed, it's made full, it's satisfied like a debt owed, right? So what he's saying is the time, right now, again, remember I said it, he's, he's, he's constantly right now, right now, right now, saying this is not coming, it is right now completed. Guys, 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 guys. He hasn't died on the cross yet. He hasn't done any of that, and he's already telling them, right now, I am here, right now. This was the first time that he's saying, I'm already, it's already happening right now. It's completed also right now. Can I just... It blows my mind to think of it this way, so I'm just going to say it. Because God is eternal outside of time, he's not constrained by it. That's why he's saying it is already here. Because it is happening, has happened, and it already happened. He's saying, come on, get on board with this thing. It is completed. It is satisfied. What is satisfied? The law, righteousness, and prophecy. Okay? He's talking about that, and I will continue on and show you this. And what is it? The kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? This phrasing, at hand literally means reach out and grab it. At hand does not mean soon to come. It means it's tangible. It means you can have it. It means it's, it's within your grasp. Okay? This is huge. And so what does he say? To grasp this thing, what does he say? 
Repent. Turn the other way. Go. Stop doing what you were doing, because that is just that is just hell on earth. Turn from that and believe, trust in this good news. And that's Jesus was just like John the Baptist, because everything we're going to read of Jesus in the next ten weeks is that exact concept over and over and over again. Let's continue on, shall we? Let's, let's look at the next one. So that was Mark. Let's look what Luke says happens, okay? So we've already seen fulfillment of all righteousness in Matthew. Now we've just seen is this fulfillment of right now, of the kingdom of God being at hand. Let's see what Luke has to say about this fulfillment idea. Right after Jesus is baptized, and then he's, he's went through the temptation and has overcome that, okay? So now what happens, okay? Luke 4, verse 16, is where we're kind of picking up after, okay? This is right after... Uh, let's just let's just read actually 15. He says, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. So this is after Jesus come back. He's out teaching in the churches. He's, he's running all over, okay, teaching. And people are like, whoa, this is happening right now. And he and he came to Nazareth where he had uh, where he'd been brought up. So he's in this area where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So, it's, y'all, we have a weird idea of church. So, if you can imagine in the synagogues, basically, those who could read, I'm giving you a super, super brief version of this. They would have reading of scriptures. Like, they would have a reading of a poem, a reading of history, like a reading. And if you've ever been to a church that says, we're going to have an Old Testament reading. And they get it from synagogue worship, actually, because they would read parts. And it's Jesus' turn, because he was literate, okay? Because also, remember, he's the cousin of John the Baptist, who was supposed to be the high priest. So, Jesus is quite literate. Okay? So he could read all the scrolls. He understood it. And it's his turn to get up and read. And it was delivered unto him the book of Isaiah. And when he added, he opened it and found the place where it was written. Okay? It wasn't like someone said, will you read Isaiah? It says they gave him Isaiah because it was time to read from prophecy. And he goes and finds the place. Jesus loves to pick a fight, guys. That's the next thing you know about Jesus. He is a fight picker, okay? And he goes and finds this place that it is written. And now they're quoting from Isaiah, and this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, and to set at liberty those that are bruised. Right here, 19, you ready for this? Y'all ready for this? To preach the acceptable, hold that word because we're going to define it in a minute, year of the Lord, the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he got really bold. He shuts the book, gave it to the minister, so gave it to the priest, and sat down, and all eyes were on him in the synagogue and fastened upon them. And he said unto them, This day, this scripture is... Fulfilled in your ears. And all bear witness and wonder and gracious words were received out of the mouth. And they said unto him, is, is this not Joseph's son? We're going to pause there. There's a couple things you need to understand here, guys. This is, I'm sorry, I'm getting excited. Y'all don't look excited, okay? I need a little bit more energy. Red Bull. Next week, we're doing Red Bull. Okay? I think you did enough, bro. <laughs> this is just, this is just sheer, just sheer excitement, this guy's. Because here's something you know. In every synagogue, specifically the ones in Jerusalem and Judea, that area, I don't know if they still do it to this day, because I haven't recently stepped foot in the synagogue, uh, but there was a chair 
that sat at the front, and it was called the chair of the Messiah. It was, re it was reserved for him. And the reason, if you read it, again, put some thought into it, Ethel. Think about it. He straight up read it and shut the book. No explanation. He didn't read it and say, so let me tell you. There was no six-point sermon. He just read the words, shut the book, quite cocky like I imagined. Handed it to the dude and went and sat down. But why were all eyes fixed on him? He didn't go sit down there. He sat down in that chair. Right. And he said, and then he said, this day, right, why, why, right now, it's fulfilled, completed. But what in that scripture? I remember I said acceptable. So he says everything about what he's coming to do. He says, and to preach, to proclaim, that's the word preach, the acceptable year of the Lord. Oh, the word acceptable is a good one. You, if you already read in your notes, you're already getting goosebumps. If you didn't, you ain't got the spirit of God. You need, we'll pray right now. <laughs> because the word acceptable means to be approved or to be taken with your hand like granted access. So the acceptable year of the Lord is the year of the Lord, the time of the Lord in which it is at hand. Y'all thought he just made up this stuff about the kingdom of God is at hand. That sounds really cool. He's quoting from the Old Testament things he already knew, and he says, oh, it's now. And he goes around. So he's saying, now I'm going to preach the at hand here, right now, year of the Lord. And he says, now it's fulfilled. It's completed. Now. Y'all said I had 10 minutes, so I've got two left. John 1.45. John 1.45 is where it starts talking about this fulfillment idea as well. John 1.45. This is right after, remember, we were just talking about, he says, what are you looking for? Right? That's in verse 38. He says, what do, you, what do you seek? And they said unto him, Rabbi, you know, what, what services, where, where do you dwell? He said, hey, come and see. So come see where I live. And they go and hang out with him. It says it was the 10th hour. So it's late, and they just hang out with Jesus all night. Okay? And it says, uh, in verse 40, it says, when, uh, when one of the two, which heard John uh, speak, they followed him, and it was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he, he found his brother, Simon. Okay? And he said unto him, we have found the Messiah which is being interpreted the Christ. Okay, that's what the word Messiah means, is Christ. It's just helping us out in our English language there. Saying the Christ. And they brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, says, so Jesus meets Peter for the first time. He says, there are Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is the Hebrew word for rock. Guess what the Greek word for that is? Petros. Guess what the English word for that is? Peter. Okay. It says you're going to be drunk, which is interpreted a stone. Is it the following day they went forth to Galilee? Okay, and it talks about this. Now, what you need to see right here, and they said we have found the Messiah. We have found him. Okay. What is happening about this fulfillment? Let's hang on real quick. Let's just keep reading. So they found him, and they said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which being interpreted the Christ. They brought him, and said, Now the following day Jesus went forth to Galilee, and found Philip, uh, and said unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was the son of Bethesda, in the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found uh, Nathaniel, and said unto him, We have found him. Now, who, 
Now, so you see what's happening? They're going and telling each other. We have found him. Who did they find? He said, whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of, of Joseph. As we keep reading, he said, and he called unto them, all oh, good things come out of Nazareth, so on and so forth. What you are seeing right here, what have they found? The fulfillment of the law. Notice it didn't say Moses and the law. It says Moses in the law, meaning what Moses wrote in the law about what was going to happen. That's what they're saying. They're saying, we have found the one that in the law where Moses wrote it, this is him. And all the prophets, Isaiah, the other guy that we were just reading about. And they wrote, and it's him, Jesus, this guy. That's who it is. Now, guys, you can read about this prophecy thing, okay? Because I ain't got time for it. Or we'll go over next week. I want to say this. This is my... I'm having to cut off all the other cool stuff at the end of that. Unless y'all got time. Yeah. time. But guys, this is the opening idea of Jesus. This is just the opener of what he's talking about. And if you right now, notice it said completed. So if you are looking for something else outside of what he just said, you are missing his entire point. Y'all not seeing that, see? Can, can I really? I'm going to pull a Jesus. What are you waiting for? What is this whole idea, this whole message about when Jesus comes? Then the, 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 you are taking away everything he just said, and that's the first thing he said. By constantly looking and waiting for something else to happen and something else to come, you are saying he didn't fulfill it, he didn't complete it, it's not at hand. You're actually calling Jesus a liar and all the guys who wrote it down. You're saying all of that's a lie because it ain't done yet. Matter of fact, it's tied back in when he's on the cross. He says, it is finished. finished. Guess what that word finished is? Fulfilled. So the very idea... That you think you are waiting and looking, you are doing away with the primary first thing Jesus said was, was already happening. It's now. Now, let's talk real quick. We're going to do one of these real quick. A prophecy every week. At least one. There are, give or take, around 400 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. We will not be reading all 400 of them. I, I, however, have been working on a spreadsheet of all of them, where they're mentioned, and then where they are fulfilled at in the New Testament. When I complete that, which may be at the end of this thing, I will give that to you as well. Right now I'm only a couple hundred in, okay? So there's there's a lot of them, okay? But this is one that I found interesting, okay? There's a prophecy in Micah 5.2 that says he will be born, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem okay? This would have been penned and written sometime around 7. 50 to 680 B.C. B.C. means before Christ, okay? That's about 700 years before he was born, okay? 700 years before he was born. Not only is it crazy cool that the document survived that long, it's also crazy cool that then it happened, okay? Where do we know that that happened from? Well, Matthew 2 says it and Luke 2 says it. Well, you may be saying to yourself, okay, that's cool, but that's also someone who wrote it and knew that that prophecy, so they just said that's where he was born. How do we know Jesus was even born there? How do we know this ever even happened? Well, first off, there's an aspect that I can't prove to you, but I can prove you this part, which is there was a census taken. This since I don't even know how to say the size name, Quirinius or something like that, okay? He took a census, and actually, if you research the census, it proves the timeline 
You have to research it a little bit more than Wikipedia, because Wikipedia is going to say, we don't know this for sure, but there's a ton of documentation from all kinds of other historians that say, yeah, they took censuses, and this census would have been at the time of Christ, and Luke mentions it saying this was the census that was taken. So there's some physical historical proof outside the Bible that there is a census that exists within the Roman archives saying, yes, this happened, and they did it in Bethlehem. Okay? That's pretty cool. <coughs> now... The last part of this is, I just called it Science of Probability and Prophecy. Okay? This is, there's actually a book by a guy named Peter Stoner. You can go read it. There's like three parts to it. Uh, he is a mathematician. He talks way over my head. Uh, this is basically a synopsis of it. What he did is he calculated the odds that Christ could have fulfilled only eight of the some odd 400. Okay? Only eight of the some odd 400. Mind you, all 400 have been fulfilled. Okay? But only eight. He said, what are the mathematical odds that a person, a person, any person being born could achieve eight of these? Some of them could be controlled, for instance, like Jesus riding on uh, the back of a donkey uh, that had never been ridden before. Okay? Yeah, that's on the Passion Week. That's Palm Sunday. Okay? So Jesus would have known that's a prophecy? So sure! Let's say that Jesus knew that and he said, well, go get me one because i got to fulfill that prophecy. Cool, we'll give you that. But Jesus couldn't control where he was born. That's something he could not have controlled, right? There are several that he could not have controlled, like how he was going to die, which we'll talk about. But this one right here. So Peter Stoner, who's a mathematician, did this and said, let's look at eight of them. And he gives the eight of them, okay? And uh, it's, it's one of them actually is being born in Bethlehem. If you look all the way at the bottom of that, it says, here's the probability that this could have happened. 100 quadrillion is the number. It's like basically 1 uh, to the like 110th or 157th power or something like that. I forget what it is. Okay? But it's a 100 quadrillion, which is more money than Joe Biden can spend. Okay? Just a joke. Shouldn't have said that. Sorry. Okay. Cut, cut, cut. 100 quadrillion. He also did the math. There hasn't even been that many people that have ever existed on planet Earth. Like, since the dawn of time, there's that at normal population rates, you could double it, and you can't even get to 100 quadrillion people that have ever existed, okay? So that means the probability that Jesus could have done just eight of these is zero. And he gives a really great example. Now, we're talking only about eight of them, okay? Only eight of them. 100 quadrillion is your chance. That, that is the worst lottery, like the worst odds you could ever ask for. And here's the example he gave, and I love it because he uses the Texas. He said, this is the example. Take the state of Texas. Fill it, the entire state, three foot deep of silver dollar coins. Put an X on one of them and throw it from a helicopter. Turn somebody loose blindfolded and the first one you pick up has to be the right one. That's the odds that you can do it. That's his example of his mathematical odds. Like, that's the odds that you can do eight of these. That's intense, okay? Now, you can read all the details of all that. I've put it all there. So this is the opening of the vault. Fulfillment is the concept that is the first thing that comes out in it. This idea of it being completed. This idea of the kingdom of God here at hand. That is from his baptism and his 40 days in the wilderness. Where we pick up on Sunday is talking about some of the first parables he gives to help us understand this thing called the kingdom of God. And then from there we continue to move on. We're going to discuss concepts like the phrase, the son of God. What does that even mean? Son of man, because it says both. 
Well, why is there different terms for it? We're going to discuss Melchizedek, if you've ever heard that. We're going to discuss things like the kingdom of God, yes, because that is an absorbent amount of what he talks about. We're going to discuss lots of these concepts as we continue to read through all the words that he has spoken. We've actually only read a total right now of about 30, of 2,000. 